The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 4, 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thanks, Josiah. So, um, so we are uh, on the front end of a series that we're calling Encounters with Christ, and it chronicles various encounters that Jesus had with different uh, people, and in this case, an angel named Satan, a fallen angel. We're going to talk today about a conversation Jesus had with Satan, and the modernist in us rolls his eyes, rolls her eyes. Really? I mean, aren't we past all of these myths about things like a devil? And I suppose that it's important to acknowledge that, that we live in a post-enlightenment reality. We're more, more, more materialistic in the way that we think. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as too sophisticated and too smart, too intelligent, too educated to actually believe in an entity such as the devil. And, and yet, and I hope I can convince you of this today, if the devil is who the Bible says he is, and we dismiss his existence, we're actually playing right into his hands. It might surprise some of you to know that the mission of the devil is not to get you to fear him, to be afraid of him. The mission of the devil is to get you to ignore him and to assume that he doesn't exists, that he's not there. If you don't believe that there is a devil, you are believing the devil. If you don't believe there is a devil, you're believing the devil. You know, C.S. Lewis in his famous uh, book, Screwtape Letters, which is this uh, picture of an elder demon coaching a younger demon about how to trick people uh, to disbelieve in the existence of and or in the goodness of God, and to disbelieve in an invisible world. And the elder demon says to the younger, 
The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in the Christian's mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. So, in the spirit of not wanting you to listen to screw tape and screw tape's logic and not for you to fall for his tricks. I want to talk about the devil under three headings. How do we know he exists? Three questions, really. And then how do we know he's getting to us? And then finally, how can we resist him? So first, how do we know he exists? Well, four times he is named here in this text alone, and four times he's referred to as the devil. The Greek word there is diabolos, which means the accuser, the slanderer, the liar. He's not a truth teller. He's by nature a deceiver. And if we do a survey of the Bible, Old Testament and New, we see that the devil is presented as a personal being, a creature, an angel who was once beautiful and yet who sought independence from God, who sought to usurp God, who wanted to be God, and then who fell from his position along with a third of the angels. He's also pictured as an invisible power. In Ephesians 6, we're told that it's not flesh and blood that we wrestle against truly, but powers and principalities of evil and of darkness that we can't see. It says that he's an intelligence who is so intelligent that he can trick people with the highest IQs into believing that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Christianity itself is all a foolish myth. The Bible is all a foolish myth. If you walk the Harvard campus, for instance, you'll see on the front of virtually every building scripture quotes. And Harvard, like all of the other Ivy League universities except for one, was founded by Christian lay people and by Christian ministers. Somewhere along the way, in our post-enlightenment era, some of the brightest, sharpest minds have come to deny the very existence upon which their institutions were founded. In fact, the Washington Post uh, just came out with uh, a report recently that among the students who will be enrolled to start at Harvard in 2019, there will be more atheists than Christians enrolled at Harvard. So here's what I want to do, though. I, I, I assume that maybe most of you, since you're coming to a church, uh, probably believe in the existence of, of a higher being or of a higher power, of a higher good, and let's just call him God. If you do believe in God, a personal and a good God, don't you think it's a failure on some level of logic to not believe in a devil who is a destructive evil? 
I mean, think about Harry Potter. My, my mind went straight to Harry Potter when I was going through this study myself this past week. Voldemort, the Dark Lord, right? His presence at and around Hogwarts is felt everywhere. There, there's signs and shadows of the existence of Voldemort everywhere. You've got the life-sucking Dementors, the ghostly Dementors. You've got the glare of Professor Snape. You've got the, the cunning and dark methods of the Slytherin house. And yet the Hogwarts strategy, because nobody wants to deal with him, is to not name him. In fact, the, the, the nickname for Voldemort is he who must not be named. Let's just go on as if he doesn't even exist. And as they do that, Voldemort is playing right into everybody's hands. Turns out that Harry Potter is not a fantasy at all. There are Dementors and there are Slytherins everywhere. All we have to do is look at the latest news cycle. All we have to do is look at history to realize that there are signs and shadows of a dark, evil intelligence who is invisible and yet as real as the hand in front of me. Genocide, lynch mobs, drug cartels, domestic abuse, poverty, racism, self-hatred, slavery, self-harm, you take a look at the latest news cycle, even, you know, look, look at this past week, you know, bombs mailed everywhere. And wouldn't you agree there's a lot more evidence in the world of a dark, invisible being than there is of a good, invisible being? How can you say you believe in the existence of a good God and deny the existence of an evil angel when you live in a world like this. You know, one of the commentaries I read was very insightful. It, it said, look, if you deny the existence of a devil, you really have a low opinion, don't you, of human nature. Because what you're saying is that we are capable of all this evil, genocide, lynch mobs, drug cartels, domestic abuse, poverty, slavery, self-hatred, self-harm, racism, etc. We are capable of all of these things without assistance. You have an incredibly low view of human nature, don't you? That we could be capable of all of this all alone. And maybe we are. The second trick that the devil likes to play on people like us is to, let's say we, we actually believe in something like the Bible, or we say we believe in something like the Bible, but his second trick is to, to entice us to be doctrinally flexible, to pick and choose, to decide what we want to embrace from the Bible and to decide what we want to dismiss, or to decide what we want to 
twist and reword and repurpose as he does three times with Jesus in this encounter. You know, have you ever heard of this? Well, well, that's your interpretation. Well, there are some things that are very open to interpretation because they're not clear, and then there are other things that are quite clear, but also quite disruptive to the way that we sometimes want to conduct our lives and to think and, and act and live. And we dismiss it by saying, well, that's just your interpretation. Things that are abundantly clear, like you shall not commit adultery. Things that are abundantly clear. And that's what Satan's doing with Jesus. Well, that's just your interpretation. I'll get to that in a second, but what he wants you to do, if you've bought in, generally speaking, to the Bible, is to pick and choose and to to essentially stand over it instead of standing beneath it. To revise it as you wish instead of yielding to it so it revises you. But if we say that we believe God, we say that we believe Jesus Christ, we have to embrace all of it, don't we? Don't we have to embrace everything that he said? If he is who he says he is? If he did rise from the dead? You know, Genesis says that the serpent enticed Adam and Eve by saying, well, did God really say this? Just calling into question things that God said. Then we go to Job, and it is Satan who is pictured as the one who's afflicting Job with terror and with destruction. We go to Jesus, and we look through the Gospels. We see this account repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of a conversation that he had with the devil in the desert. We go to Luke chapter 10, and he tells his disciples, I once saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, recounting his own history with Satan. John chapter 8, he, he tells the religious moralist bullies, it is not God who is your father, your father is the devil, Satan himself. John chapter 10, he refers to Satan as the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Matthew chapter 16, when, when Jesus is trying to steer, or when Peter is trying to steer Jesus away from his mission, which will involve suffering and, 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 and death. And Peter is saying, never, never, because you're the Lord. And, 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 and Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. And he also casts out demons, leads his disciples to do the same. In summary, he is there, and he is formidable, and he hates your guts, and he hates your God, and he wants you to hate your God. And if you don't believe there is a devil, then you're believing the devil, and you do so to your own peril. There is such a thing as a silent killer. We're here in the Silicon Valley of healthcare, Nashville, Tennessee. There are things like HIV and cancer and artery plaque that people are walking the streets with and going into their offices and into their homes and into entertainment venues with silent killers that are working on them. That's why we go to annual checkups, that's why we get our blood drawn, that's why we get scans, and so on, to look for those silent killers, because even if we do not feel that they are there, they are. 
And if we leave them unaddressed, if we don't look at them and stare them down and attack them, the longer we deny their existence, the more they have opportunity to work on us, to erode what's on the inside, and eventually to derail and crush and destroy us. So it is with Satan. Believe he's there? You're right. Don't believe he's there? He's still there. And he's working on you, and you don't even know it. How do we know he's getting to us? How do we know we're drinking his Kool-Aid? Romans 1 gives a pretty good summary of what it means to fall into the hands of Satan. It's when we exchange the truth of God for things that are not true. When we exchange that which is true for that which is not. And there are two overarching lies here that are pictured as he tries to, to tempt Jesus away from his mission. The first lie is this. Very important to see this lie for what it is in an affluent culture like ours. The first lie is this. Comfort is always better than adversity. Comfort is always better than adversity. So Jesus has been voluntarily fasting, going without food for 40 days. By this time, he is hangry. And along comes Satan. I know you're a miracle worker. The universe knows you're a miracle worker. You created the universe. Use that power of yours to turn these stones to bread. Eat something. Treat yourself. Every time Jesus encounters the devil like this, his response is, it is written. Goes straight to the scripture. In this case, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then Satan says, well, I'll give you power. If you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth, as if the kingdoms of the earth belonged to Satan in the first place. They don't. They never did. Never will. And as if the earth was enough of a domain over which Jesus would rule. Everything in heaven and earth belongs to Christ. He's the king of the cosmos. I mean, the, the earth is just a little bitty thing. And so, Satan is offering something that Satan doesn't have the right to offer. And furthermore, it's something that's actually quite small on a relative scale of what Jesus reigns over. I'll give you power if you worship me. Jesus' response, it is written, worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Well, well, Jesus, jump off a cliff. Show me what you can do. You can, we both know, you can fly without a parachute. We both know the angels can catch you and carry you because you are who you are. Use that power of yours. And Jesus again it is said, another way of saying it is written, you shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. So what's the genesis of this, this moment between Jesus and Satan? It's right there in verses 1 and 2. The Holy Spirit arranged this encounter. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit, it says, into the desert for 40 days where he is tempted by the devil. 
The literal word here means tested. It means he's tested. The significance of the number 40. Jesus is fasting for 40 days. 40 is also the number of years that the people of Israel, the people of God, had wandered through the desert and were tested every day. Their faithfulness was tested. Their trust in the Word of God was tested every day through trial, through adversity, through struggle, through lack, through the call to trust in things that they could not see and in a God who was leading them. Now, at the end, there's the promise. You're going to inherit the promised land of Canaan, Israel. So they've come out of slavery, out of the house of bondage and evil uh, in, in, in Egypt from the, from the Egyptian pharaoh. And they're to spend 40 years trusting God into the desert to prepare them for the promised land. Because you need, you need to go to, through adversity in order to have the kind of heart and character to be able to handle prosperity. And God understands this. Sometimes it's much easier to pass the adversity test than it is to pass the prosperity test, isn't it? God knows that their hearts need to be prepared for prosperity through seasons of adversity. And so here we are, fast forward in time, Jesus is is encountering the devil, and every time he says it is written, it's from that what he quotes is from Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 7, and Deuteronomy 8. And, and, and this, is the see, this is the part of Scripture that is chronicling Israel's being tested in the wilderness. And so, so what Jesus is doing is a couple of things. He's first of all identifying with Israel and with all the people of God when we are tested. I am one of you. I am with you. I am alongside you. I understand. I'm not unable to sympathize with your weakness, because I too have been tested in every way, yet without sin. But he's also normalizing, Jesus is, trial and tribulation in the Christian experience. Even Jesus Christ says this in Hebrews chapter 5, learned obedience, learned faithfulness through the things he suffered, through trial, through tribulation. You know, the prior chapter, Jesus is baptized, and at his, at his baptism, he hears a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son, with him I'm well pleased. And then right after that, he, he hears all these voices from hell. That's typically what happens. When you're elevated in the kingdom of God, hell breaks loose. You know, 2 Corinthians 12, we, 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 we hear this experience firsthand from the Apostle Paul when he talks about this thorn that he's, he has in his flesh. And it's, it's curious because... Uh, you know, it's kind of like Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit to encounter Satan. Paul says, there was given me, the word there is charis, which means grace. The implication there is it's given by God. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, which was a messenger of Satan. And so here you are, God using even the activity of Satan to shape a man as Paul says, to keep him from becoming conceited. Paul is given a gift of adversity in order to prepare his heart for the seasons of prosperity so that he doesn't get conceited. 
thorn was given me in my flesh. That's the first lie. Comfort is always better than adversity. Second lie is that experience is always better than faithfulness. Experience is never better than faithfulness. If you, if you, if you choose between the two, can you have them both together? Yes. But if you choose or prioritize experience over faithfulness, especially in your relationship with God, you're going to lose. Satan says to Jesus, go big. You have all this power. Use it. Be a big shot. Be awesome. Perform miracles because you can. Turn this stone into bread. Fly like a bird. This is how Satan wants us to evaluate churches. This is the voice of Satan. If your church experience doesn't take your breath away, must be a dead church. If your church experience feels ordinary and mundane, must be a dead church. If your church doesn't have great worship, which means the kind of experience that makes your heart beat faster, makes your serotonin you know, activate and get aggressive with all those happiness vibes, then it must not be true worship. You know, Nirvana helps us with this. This doesn't smell like true worship. This smells like teen spirit. Here we are now. Entertain us. You don't come here to, I hope you don't come to this or any church to be entertained. I hope you come here to be formed. I hope you come here to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ through the high moments and the low moments, through ecstasy and through boredom. Whatever it takes for God to shape you into the very best version of what He has created you to be in Christ. You know, like a dinner that begins with dessert, if what you're after ultimately is the experience, the buzz, the euphoria of a moment, it's like you're eating dessert before dinner. You're killing your appetite by consuming what's not essential. You're killing your appetite for what is. The significance of 40, remember this. The best worship, the best, is when you learn obedience that includes dry deserts. Through pathways that include dry deserts. Dead worship, truly dead worship, is when you make experience primary and make formation into the likeness of Christ secondary. The goal of the God experience is, especially in the here and now in a fallen world, is, is less that we be swept away by euphoria and more that we be formed into faithfulness. You know that you have been with God truly. You know that you've really worshipped because you're saying it is written just a little bit more in the little bitty invisible moments where it's just you and Satan and God. That's how you know that you've really been to worship. It is written, is becoming 
just a little bit more your standard response to temptation. You notice yourself saying no to that second glance and yes to a pure heart. No to greed and yes to generosity. No to autonomy, yes to church. No to cynicism, yes to hope. No to grudges, yes to reconciliation and peace. No to lies, yes to the truth. No to self-loathing, yes to grace. It is written. You know, I remember one wife saying her deepest experience of love from her husband, surprisingly, this is an older woman, surprisingly was not on the honeymoon or during honeymoon-like moments. Her deep experience, deepest experience of her husband's love was when she got sick and she was incapacitated and unable to be intimate with him, and he served her. That's how you know you have been to worship. That's how you know you've been to church. That's how you know you've been with God. That's how you know you've beaten Satan. Is that when God is not giving you an orgasm, you're serving Him still. How can we resist Him? The same way Jesus did. Dive into the truth. Get into the truth, like David Filson so often says, so the truth will get into you. Be transformed, Romans 12 says, by the renewing of your mind. Or as the late now Eugene Peterson said, eat this book. Devour it. Let it become your food and drink, as it was for Jesus Christ. If Jesus needed the Scriptures in this way, so much so that He had them committed to memory, how much more do we need them? You know, Tim Keller used to say of Jonathan Edwards, and still does, I suppose, if you poked the man, he would bleed Scripture. In the same way, if you poked Jesus, he would bleed Scripture. Here, Satan is poking him with needles, and he's bleeding drops of Scripture. Later on the cross, Satan would stab him with a dagger. And again, he would defeat Satan by bleeding Scripture, gushing this time from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And from Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. My God, why have you forsaken me? You're not giving me the experience. This is the furthest thing from euphoria. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I will trust and serve you still. Not my will, but yours be done. All of Jesus' life, including this moment, was for you. All of Jesus' life, in every trial and temptation, He cried out, it is written for your sake. What better reason for you and I to cry out in moments of trial and temptation, it is written for His. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, forgive us for chasing the experience. Forgive us for desiring a sign more than we desire to be shaped and formed. Forgive us for repudiating the desert, for dismissing 
adversity even, as not only a legitimate, but your primary path for faithfulness to prepare us for the years of prosperity and the seasons of prosperity. Lord, teach us to exchange lies for the truth, to turn up the volume on your voice and to turn down the volume on the voice of the one who has been called and who has also been proven to be a slanderer, an accuser, and a liar. Enable us to be able to spot the counterfeit because we have come to know so intimately the real thing. It's in your name we pray. Amen.